Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's the resident we head to and it's the resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. They've now taken a whole series of political stances and it would appear they want to be moral arbiters. I'm delighted that Andrew Griffith, the city minister, is going to get 19 of the big banks into the Treasury today to say, stop this. Stop judging people on their legally held political opinions. Get about your business of being a bank. And I hope that today marks the moment when there is a turning point in this. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. We're recording on the afternoon of Wednesday, the 26th of July. I'm Callum MacDonald. Thanks for being here. And also here, Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May when she was prime minister. Hello, Kirsty. Good afternoon. Lovely, lovely to be speaking with you. Um, we're recording a day earlier than usual because I'm on a jaunt on Thursday, a jaunt to Edinburgh. If you'd like to know more about that, you can listen to the Hollywood Sources podcast. We like to call it a sister podcast of this one because apparently that's the terminology. Uh, right, thanks for being there and thank you for your emails. This week, the emails are for you, Kirsty Buchanan. So let me read you these. Lisa says, afternoon, another great episode this week. I thoroughly enjoy the podcast and I've listened from the start. Sending best wishes to Kirsty. You too, Callum. But I think Kirsty needs to know we care about her, especially during these difficult times, which I can't even begin to imagine. Please let her know she brings laughter to my week and interesting insight and commentary and send her all the best, says Lisa. 
Okay, I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you for that, Lisa. That's very, very kind, and I am touched. Here's a select very few touched. others. Sorry, I'm just. You okay? You take him in. Mm, I'll read, I'll yeah, read sorry. Yeah. No, that's okay. I'll read you this one from David in Lincolnshire. Uh, hi both. Just a note to wish Kirsty a speedy recovery. Such a brave lady. I listen every week and love her input. Yours too, of course, Callum, with a laughing, crying emoji. You don't need to make me feel okay. I'm, I'm fine. Uh, David goes on. Uh, <laughs> David goes on. You will never be short of subject matter. David from Lincolnshire, and there's a love heart emoji for Kirsty, is what he says. Uh, and Thanks, I will just David. do one more for now, which is from Kathleen. Hello, Team Whitehall Sources. Just popping over an email to say thank you for the incredible podcasts you produce. They are really interesting and fun to listen to, especially for an uber-political like me, sending best wishes to Kirsty on her road to recovery. So there you are. Thank There's you so much. There's a few emails to get us going. I am a very lachrymose person at, person at the best <laughs> of times, but, um, yeah, no, thank you for that. I... Uh, Yes, could you stop there? Otherwise, I'd yeah, you know, no, just take I a moment to with myself for the podcast. But yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. There you are. Well, the email inbox is always open. Whether you've got a political insight question to ask of the great Kirsty Buchanan, or whether you want to just send a little note, then you're very welcome to do any and all of the above. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com and you can get in touch always. The inbox is always open and then we'll read your message on the on the next episode that we record week to week. Uh, but thank you for those. That really is lovely. Uh, right, shall we talk some politics then? Um, I mean, yes, I've got a grip of myself now. Yeah. <laughs> if, if it wasn't the emails, it would be the the politics that would make us all cry. So, <laughs> so let's do this. Shall we do post by elections first of all? Because uh, yeah, we always sort of back away from discussing them at the time in case we get you know off commed in the style of GB News or something. So let's um, let's talk about by elections and let's talk about the aftermath of the by elections. So a couple of big um, a, a big sort of uh, headlines really from this. First of all, the Conservatives having their majorities in all three seats, I mean, frankly, burned. They did win or hold Uxbridge and South Ryslip, which of course had been Boris Johnson's uh, constituency until he ran away into the mists of time. Uh, but they re that majority was reduced from about 7,000 to just under 500. Uh, and then they lost a seat to the Labour Party and to the Liberal Democrats, both overturning majorities of around 20,000, give or take. I mean, the big picture sort of message from this, Kirsty, first of all, undoubtedly was bad day, night, bad spell, bad time for the Conservatives. Uh, yeah, look, 100%. But what was fascinating about last weekend, right, absolutely fascinating, is but for the want of 496 people yeah. voting differently in Uxbridge, what we'd have seen in the media fallout would have been an entire focus on what, if anything, Rishi Sunak could do to save the Conservative Party from electoral oblivion at the next general election. Um, and if you look at the time splash on the Saturday... Uh, that preceded the uh, by-elections, that's clearly where number 10 thought they were going to be, right? Which is why you had that splash into the Times on the Saturday where the Prime Minister was setting out his plans for a more aggressive political campaign in the autumn with divisive policies on small boats, trans rights and crime. So they were all prepared to kind of come out fighting, as it were, and say, look, you're going to see a new tough Rishi Sunak going into the 
going into the autumn. But actually, that's not what happened with the media story. What happened with the media story is that, you know, uh, and this takes some doing, by the way, to turn what what should have been a debate about how toxic the Conservatives are Mm. electorally into a debate about how toxic net zero policies are off the back of, you know, one policy around uh, ultra-low emission zones. Um, uh, But that's exactly what happened over the weekend. And there are a number of fascinating reasons for that, which we can discuss. But, like, you know, but anybody that thinks that Labour are going to be able to cruise to a general election victory should look at the media fallout from the by-election last week, right? It should have been a triumphant moment for Starmer. It should have been, you know, on what level of, you know, one to ten of catastrophe at the Conservatives now at. And actually it converted into, very quickly, pushed by the centre-right, a story about, uh, you know, net zero and whether... Um, you know, whether both political parties would and could and should back away from net zero policies which were deemed to be quote unquote toxic. Now we can well, let's go into more detail about that in a minute, but but actually the quick conversion from one thing to the other shows that, you know, we are not on cruise control for a Labour victory by mm. any measure, because once you get the sort of centre right papers starting to, to rally and these wedge issues playing more and more, and we've spoken before on the podcast about, you know, climate action increasingly likely to become a wedge issue into the election. Um, This is exactly what played out last week, and it was fascinating to watch. Yeah, it really was. And on that, we spoke to um, Angela Rayner on the Friday morning, uh, deputy leader of the Labour Party, of course, and she was very sort of circumspect. She was almost kind of a a little bit more timid than you might expect from Angela Rayner when we spoke to her. On the programme, I, th- I think from exactly what you're saying there, that there was a sort of a perspective there that it should have been an absolute triumph, march to victory typed feel for the Labour Party. But actually, she was kind of saying, look, there has been a message here, um, particularly obviously in the Uxbridge uh, result, that we need to pay attention to. And that centred around the ultra low emissions zone in London, uh, it would seem. And so that opened up really the rift between the sort of Westminster Labour Party, if you like, and Sadiq Khan, who is the mayor of London. And I have to say, pretty quickly on the Friday, it felt to me as though the Westminster Labour lot were really throwing Sadiq Khan under the bus somewhat. I mean, the very low emissions bus. But they were throwing him under the bus nonetheless (laughs) because, because that seemed to be the wedge that kept a Conservative MP in the seat in Uxbridge and South Ryslip. And it just felt to me like a really odd strategy. Uh, well, look, I mean, it is uh, It is no doubt, I don't think anybody doubts, that ULES uh, is what uh, cost Labour victory in Uxbridge. Nobody doubts that at all. Where there is a good deal of debate is what lessons you should draw from that. Mm. Um, and one of the first lessons that Labour should draw about it is that they couldn't have made a worse fist of this if they'd tried, right? So uh, ULES, just to be really clear, is a... Tory tax on the poorest Londoners, right? It is a regressive tax that will hit the poorest Londoners and small businesses, right? And yes, nine out of 10 vehicles are exempt. And frankly, even my old banger would be exempt. So it doesn't, its reach isn't quite as do or die as, as the media would have you believe. But it is a Tory tax. It was bought in by Boris Johnson. 
And its rapid expansion was ordered by Grant Shapps, who was then Transport Secretary, as the quid pro quo for bailing out transport for London during COVID. Mm. Now, what Labour could and should have done was, you know, use that kind of, I don't know, Mick Lynch, RMT, union leader, firebrand rhetoric to paint uh, ULEZ as a Tory tax, right? And that their hands are tied, et cetera, et cetera, and go on the attack with it. But um, this debate has allowed to be dictated by the kind of metropolitan, lovey Labour set, that you know, and particularly kind of spearheaded by Sadiq Khan, wanging on about how you know ULEZ and clean air is a is a is a human rights issue, um, you know, in the middle of a cost of living crisis. So. Uh, so they couldn't have made a worse fist of it. And the reality is, like, ULIS is not an environmental issue. It's a public health issue, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't let your kid, for argument's sake, get in a car that was chock full of people all having a fag, right? Mm-hmm. But thousands of Londoners die prematurely because the quality of our air is so poor. So, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an easy read across here from a public health point of view. But whether you wanted to push it as public health or whether you wanted to push it as a Tory tax. They didn't do either of these things. They allowed the framing of this to be an environmental issue. They allowed the centre-right to frame this and fell into to line with that. And they, you know, and they misguidedly wanged on about it being, you know, good for the planet and good for the environment in the absolute epicentre of the worst cost of living crisis that any of us can remember. And so when it cost them the by-election... All it did was allow the, you know, the the centre right papers and the uh, you know and the you know, and the and the centre right of the Conservative Party to move into that space and say, ah, oh, yes, well, you see, this is this is a wedge issue. Cut all this green crap. Voters aren't interested in it, um, and it'll cost Labour. Now, Labour was already spooked by this kind of thing. I mean, you'd seen, you know, the kickback they got when they wanted to when they announced that they were going to phase out North Sea oil and gas in 50 years' time, and they were spooked by the kickback that that produced. And they were also spooked into pushing their £28 billion green prosperity plan mm. into the back end of, of, a, of a first term rather than the front term. Although, again, why on earth they called it a green prosperity plan rather than just a prosperity plan? I don't know. But, you know... And so bit by bit by bit, because they've allowed this kind of framing of ULES, they're now caught into this, right, we're coming for ULES as an issue. And then the next thing that will come after this and the thing after that will be, you know, around EV and around heat pumps. And they will, mm. they'll be pushed permanently back onto the back foot in a way that the Conservatives won't. One thing that also resonated, I think, in the weekend after the by-elections, or certainly the day after, was Steve Tuckwell, who won the Uxbridge and South Ryslip seat. And by the way, the Labour winner was Keir Mather, the 25-year-old, and Sarah Dyke, the Liberal Democrat um, candidate, won there uh, in that in, in that by-election. So the, the by-elections were Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Selby and Ainsty, uh, and Somerton and Froome. Those were the three places. In Uxbridge, Steve Tuckwell held it for the Conservatives. But in his victory speech he he basically thanked to paraphrase but he pointed to Sadiq Khan as the reason for his victory he did not mention Rishi Sunak and I think that that probably tallies with what then Professor Sir John Curtis 
uh, polling legend, polling guru, fount of all election knowledge, uh, who who was doing the rounds then on Friday morning, saying the Conservatives really do remain in deep electoral trouble, um, uh, and the opinion, and basically because he averaged out the result across the three by-election uh, constituencies, and he said that basically they're they're around what the national average is showing, i.e. the national average polls of around a 20-point lead for Labour have been proved to be correct as a result of these by-elections. That's what John Kurtz had to say. When you match that with the, the winning candidate, seemingly keeping a bit of distance from Rishi Sunak, that's just quite a fascinating outcome of all of this too for the Tories. Yeah, look, indeed. And, I, you know, I mean, it, and this is precisely the point. You know, mm. this should have been what it actually was, which was an early signpost of just how screwed the Conservatives are electorally, unless things really seismically change. And the polls haven't shifted in months and months and months. On the basis of these polls, which is basic maths, mm. you know, Labour are going for victory. But, but on the basis of what we saw there, which is time and time again... Labour allowing the Conservatives and the centre-right press to frame and shape a debate and accept that as the a frame and shape the debate rather than anticipate these things and head them off, uh, it's going to be very difficult for them because it's not, you know, it's not a usual time. You know, I know people think, you know, print media doesn't matter anymore, but... You know, it's not just print media. It's the titles um, as they're reflected online. It's the titles and the stories as they're shared on social media. It's the polarisation and echo chambering of of our society. So, so actually, yeah, I mean, look, the polls are right. The polls haven't changed. Curtis is 100% right. Right now, the Conservatives are in deep, deep, deep trouble. And, you know, you won't find a single Conservative... MP who would say otherwise at the moment there is a uh, you know as we were saying last week about you know the chances of reshuffle uh, from Downing Street just sort of scraping towards um, you know summer exhausted uh, uh, and a party kind of in the doldrums mm. I mean you know sadly I won't be able to go to conference this year because it's a, a walking mecca of germs and I'm too immune to press to uh, enjoy its charms this year. But it'll be, it'll be, it'll be fascinating. Most of us suspect of what the narrative will be in conference will be about the tone and mm. what people are saying in the bars. And sometimes conference is about what happens on the floor, rarely, but sometimes. Mm. And most of the time it's about the mood of the party, the tone of the party. And this one probably more than ever will be about how depressed, how many MPs stayed away, you know, what people were saying about how doomed they were, et cetera, et cetera, all cut against this, you know, attempt by, you know, Downing Street to relaunch and reinvigorate with a more, you know, punchy, aggressive, you know, wedge issue, socially divisive kind of agenda to appeal to the conservative rank and file. Um, all topped off with a reshuffle to give it a kind of fresh lick of paint. Yeah, fresh lick of paint. So that on the divisive, um, uh, divisive agenda that you mentioned before, which was the Times front page in the aftermath, one of the observations, again, from one of our guests on the radio on that, on Times Radio, was that's not really who Rishi Sunak is. He's not by default somebody who wants to divide and conquer and, you know, drive these wedges between voters and between parties. Do you agree with that? Would this be dragging him into a place that actually he would, to some extent, be having to put on a bit of a bit of an act? 
Oh yeah, like a hundred percent. I don't yeah. think Rishi gives a hot damn about about these kind of socially divisive issues around trans rights or what have you. But the party has been long captured by uh, the kind of you know I want to say hard right's not the right word, but the right of the party mm-hmm. has long since captured the Conservative Party. It holds a substantial sway in the you know in the parliamentary party. And we know full well it holds the membership because, you know, that's why they voted for Liz Truss and not Rishi Sunak in the first place, right? Yeah. Um, because he's seen as kind of much more moderate and metropolitan uh, and missing the beat of the pulse of the nation. But mm-hmm. but actually what this is an attempt to do is to kind of, uh, you know, ensure that some of those red wall seats maintained on these kind of issues as opposed to Brexit delivery. Um, and it's also about getting your core vote out. Uh, and the core vote isn't, you know, is going to stir its stumps a bit more if it thinks that, you know, a Labour lovey set are about to come in and, you know, declare, uh, you know, declare all sorts of, you know, trans rights and push eco-taxes on them, et cetera, et cetera, of which, you know, of which we can talk more later. But... But you know, but that is the that is the kind of um, that's the kind of the, the territory in which Rishi Sunak is operating, and he uh, like, I mean, look, Liz is a natural on that side of the you know, but Boris Johnson, to be fair, was socially conservative too. But yeah, that's you know, if you're going to lead the conservative, if you're going to lead the conservative party at the moment, you are captured by this group of people, um, and you know, this is this is what they want to hear. Uh, and just to do a bit of full circle, and you're right, we will come back to that, because Sir Keir Starmer has been talking about um, uh, what a woman is. <sighs> Again, uh, let's first, though, I just want to bring you this poll, which is reported in the Times today, because it sort of ties off by election week a little. Uh, I'll read from this. This is reporting by Adam Vaughan, the environment editor of the Times. The majority of Tory voters who plan to switch to Labour in the next election think that Rishi Sunak has not done enough on climate change. Uh, Clean uh, clean energy industry figures said the results showed that the idea that environmental policies are unpopular was totally unfounded. This is polling of 3,000 adults uh, found that for voters who voted Tory in 2019 and plan to vote Labour next year, 57% felt the Prime Minister had not gone far enough on tackling climate change. Only 9% thought he had gone too far. 25% thought he had it about right. 10% didn't know. So the top two there, not gone far enough, 57%, and currently around about right, 25%. Uh, That's interesting, isn't it? Um, Here's Alok Sharma, who was uh, the chair of the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, who says, this polling is a wake up and smell the coffee moment for the siren voices, arguing that watering down the government's green growth agenda will be a vote winner. It clearly won't, says Alok Sharma. Well, and here's the fascinating thing. You know, there are insiders within the Labour Party and certainly people within the Conservative Party who are trying to use ULES to say, look, this means Mm. you need to, you know, ditch the green crap. There is no doubt that the other kind of retail policies that are now in the sights of these kind of, you know, on this pushback is around the early implementation of the phase-out of petrol and diesel vehicles in favour of electric cars and also the, the transition from gas boilers to... Um, uh, to heat pumps in the home. You know, those are the two other kind of retail wedge issues that uh, the kind of anti-climate action brigade will go for. But, 
Uh, the company I work for, um, uh, Stonehaven, uh, does a huge amount of data and insights um, and nowhere more so than in this space. And it's very important for politicians to understand what lessons to learn from Uxbridge mm. and what lessons not to learn from Uxbridge. Mm. There is no doubt at the moment, we do tons of focus groups, we do lots and lots of insight polling. There is no doubt at the moment that nothing, nothing matters more to people than the cost of living crisis. It has consumed everything else. Trust in politicians is at an all-time low. Um, uh, concerns almost like a survival mode. You're in somewhere between just about managing and kind of working just to survive and get by. Mm. It's very, very keenly felt at the moment and we're in a deeply, deeply polarised society. But the lessons to learn from you, Liz, uh, are to be mindful of policies like, as we've said before about EVs and heat pumps, policies that you would characterise as mandated change, right? In other words, actions aimed at individuals. They're a really hard sell to voters at the moment because they just think, well, hold on a minute, you know, I'm struggling to get by and you want me to pay out for X, Y and Z mm. while China is pumping out pollutants to the world, etc., etc. It is not true to say that people don't want to see uh, climate action. They do. They care deeply about it, uh, particularly from a kind of security point of view and from the future generations. They worry about the inheritance for their children and their grandchildren. Um, but what it most means is that the way you need to push and promote environmental measures isn't about the environment. You know, that's that's a that's a nice to have. Mm. But actually, the transition in Britain to, you know, a green industry brings jobs to our communities, brings growth to our country and ultimately will bring down our bills. If you become energy independent, renewable energy is the cleanest and cheapest form of energy in the world. And if you can make it and capture it and store it and put it in the grid when it's needed all of which the technology we have to exist on that at the moment, then, you know, your bill will come down, great jobs will come to our country and growth will flow. If you look at something like um, offshore wind industry, right? Yes, it needed some investment to get it off the ground. We are now a world leader, a world leader in offshore wind. We employ 60,000 people in this country in the offshore wind industry, 60,000. Mm. And that's good jobs in some of those, you know, those levelling up areas. And offshore wind is now the cheapest, the cheapest form of uh, of electricity generation in the country by, by a mile. All we need now is the technology to cap. Well, we have the technology. All we need to do is roll out uh, the ability to store that, put it into the grid when it's needed. And we have, you know, we have some tech in this country that is world beating. Mm. So you know, let's push it as what it is, which is actually. You know, back to my point about, you know, Labour's prosperity plan being a prosperity plan. It's yeah. not about, you know, it's not about the planet. It's about people and it's about their bills. And that's how you sell it right now. Lots more to come on Whitehall Sources this week. Your emails and what you've just heard. Very welcome, of course. Hello at whitehallsources.com if you'd like to get in touch. When we come back in a minute or two, we'll be discussing Nigel Farage versus the Millionaire's Bank. And it seems that Mr. Farage may have won. Uh, do stay with us. We're right back after this. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. News has reached us from our friends at the Resident Hotels, without whom we would not be here. This podcast is made in association with The Resident. The Resident in Covent Garden in London has been confirmed by TripAdvisor Traveller's Choice Best of the Best as the number two hotel in the UK and number 15 in Europe for 2023. Already, the resident Covent Garden had a magnificent reputation. It was number one in the UK TripAdvisor Traveller's Choice Best of the Best in 2022. And the resident in Victoria and the resident in Soho, both in London, feature in the UK Top 20. Add to that news that the resident in Liverpool, the resident Victoria and the resident in Kensington are all now ranked in the top 10% of hotels worldwide by TripAdvisor. Basically... What we're saying is, if you need a hotel in Liverpool or in London, book The Resident. Thanks for being with us on Whitehall Sources this week. It's Wednesday the 26th of July. We're having a lovely time in your company. Thanks for having us as part of your weekly routine. Make sure you follow and subscribe and... If you wouldn't mind, just tell a friend. Tell a friend that we're here as well. One of those political people who's always trying to bombard you with information and you're always a bit like, "Mm, you've not got that right. You need to get that from a reliable podcast. Well, here we are. Whitehall Sources is the one for them. Uh, Right, we're going to talk about Keir Starmer in a minute, who's been talking about women and indeed what a woman is. Uh, So we'll do that shortly. First, though, Nigel Farage versus Coote. Uh, the bank, of course, um, its CEO has resigned. Now, I just want to say as a sidebar to this, it feels quite um, it feels quite recessy, this, in some ways, doesn't it? Uh, Westminster's quite quiet, politics has calmed down a bit, MPs are at home, all of that sort of stuff. And so here we are talking about uh, the punishment, actually, of the NatWest boss, Alison Rose. Uh, so NatWest, which owns Coots, which is a bank, for rich people, extremely rich people. Uh, Alison Rose has uh, resigned. She stood down. After briefing a BBC journalist about Nigel Farage's financial situation, and it turned out that that briefing wasn't actually correct. Um, I mean, where to even begin with this, Kirsty? Shall I start with this, this suggestion that it's difficult to argue with that Nigel Farage, despite, despite never really winning elections, is still one of the most influential politicians that we've kind of experienced or political figures i should say that we've that we've experienced in this in this country in the last few years uh well get no argument from me i mean the whole uh the whole referendum the whole brexit referendum was born out of david cameron's attempt to uh you know cut off at the legs you know 
uh, UKIP's rise and the hemorrhaging of centre-right votes to to another party because for so long the Conservatives have captured that ground while the progressive left split all over the place between Greens and Liberal Democrats and Labour. And then all of a sudden the Conservatives had this kind of rising force of UKIP um, and Cameron thought, you know, well, we can, you know, we can stave this off by trying to out, you know, out anti-EU um, UKIP and have a referendum. And the rest, as they say, is um, uh, history. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yes, 100%, 100%. He's very, very, very influential. He now has a TV show. Uh, he remains this kind of, uh, you know... That, that political alchemy that certain people have, that even if they're really rich, they appear to be, you know, man of the people. Um, and he's not lost that. Um, added to which, of course, you know, he doesn't, uh, he keeps on telling us, want to come back into frontline politics. So he has a kind of, you know, all bets are off, free reign to say what he likes, when he likes, where he likes. It's so fascinating how this story around, uh, well, Nat West at large, Coots Bank, but NatWest at large, how it enveloped politics as well. So this from Sky News, Jeremy Hunt said he has significant concerns about how NatWest's chief exec handled the closure of Nigel Farage's bank account. Uh, Nigel Farage has called the, position, uh, called the position of the boss totally untenable. He said today that the whole board should actually go um, from, from NatWest, that they all must basically get out of there. But it did, it did just catch up lots of politicians who wanted to be a part of this conversation as well. Well, look, I mean, there's a couple of things. We spoke about this story last week because it kind of broke on the on the cusp of our... Uh, the Alison Rose element of it broke on the cusp of our, of our podcast. And mm -hmm. I said to you then, look, if this is as it is built, you know, she's going to have to, yeah. you know, apologise and fall on her sword because, you know, as Farage was busy uh, pointing out in the broadcast rounds this morning, the first role of a bank is to protect its client's confidentiality. So not only did she breach that by talking to uh, a BBC journalist about his account, the BBC journalist was also provided with inaccurate information about why that account was being closed because the information that the journalist was given was that it was because of financial reasons, that he didn't have enough money, frankly, um, uh, to justify... Uh, banking with such a prestigious bank. Now, that turns out not to be true. Farage unearthed the real uh, reason behind this through a personal, you know, a subject, in, in, uh, subject request, which is to give you your own information about that people have written about you. Um, and it was he was presented with a dossier, which he was then, as he said, obliged to make public, to, you know, which was full of inaccurate and libelous things about him, mm. which proved the point that the bank decided to close his account because they didn't like the cut of his jib, basically. Mm -hmm. They didn't mm -hmm. like his political opinions. Now, you can be a bank or you can be a political party, uh, but if you want to be a bank that wants to cross uh, that divide and say, right, you know, you do not accord with our values, then you need to be honest about that. You need to say what your values are and, you know, who will, you know, who will not be able to bank with you. But they weren't honest and upfront about that. And the CEO briefed and briefed inaccurately about why he was um, uh, why he was asked to leave the bank. And if that wasn't extraordinary enough as it was, the board then decided to back their CEO. Mm. 
even after this had been made apparent, even after she had apologised and admitted that she uh, uh, was the source of the story and uh, agreed to stand down, the board still backed her, which is an extraordinary state of affairs. And I think renders, yeah, I have to agree, I think it renders the whole of the board untenable too. How on earth, if you bank with that bank, do you have confidence in that board now? Um, And before people think, well, you know, what's it got to do with the government meddling in this bank? It's a private matter. It's not. The taxpayer still owns a 39% share in this bank Mm. because its parent company is NatWest and we bailed it out in 2008 and we still own a big old chunk of it. So it is a matter for the government. It is a matter for ministers. And frankly, it's a matter for all of us that, you know, banks need to be aware of the fact that they cannot go around breaching the confidentiality uh, of you know of their clients because it is pretty much their number one priority, yeah. and I see something just dropped on my notifications on the wake of that row and the uh, forced standing down of of Alison Rose. Uh, Eight hundred and fifty million pounds has been wiped off NatWest's value in one day. Ouch! Gosh, yeah. <laughs> that's. Uh... Quite so you know, so looking at yeah, so looking at that, don't tell me the board doesn't have to follow suit and stand well, down too, yeah. to God, regain could, some trust and confidence in the bank. It's really fa- it's a it's a it's a really fascinating story, and you know the the news is never dull. <laughs> That's the thing. I, I enjoyed this line too from Politico's playbook, which said it's worth remembering. Coots closed the Farage account in the deranged hope that it would somehow improve its reputation, as though British people cared or even knew who Nigel Farage banked with. Whoever came up with the we should consider getting their cells preserved in Moscow's pantheon of brains. <laughs> it's, it's what Politico says. Seeing as the whole thing, to put it in the mildest, mildest of terms, backfired like a jangled grenade. <laughs> Which is exactly it. It's, I mean, it's, just, it's a complete, you know, shooting themselves in the foot. Nobody, nobody would have given a, you know, anything to care about Nigel Farage's bank yeah. account. Yeah, but this is it. It's classic kind of, you know, uh, groupthink mindset um, that that drives poor decision-making from, Mm. you know, a group of people that think that they have some moral high ground because they have this set of political views as to someone over here, you know. Mm, mm. And uh, it takes something to, you know, to be completely morally bested by Nigel Farage, but that's exactly what this bank's managed to do for itself. It's just not since, I think, Gerald Ratner turned around and said to the public, yeah, our jewellery is crap. Can I think of a single time when a bank has done something, you know, more foot-shooty than this? (laughs) More foot-shooty. And there's the title of this week's episode, something about foot-shooty. That sounds good to me. More foot-shooty. (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't terribly eloquent How about yet more foot shooty That's what we'll call the episode Perfect, that'll get the clicks in uh, Right Back in, back in, the, tre- back in the trenches in, uh, in the Second World War Young soldiers who were terrified I'm not, I'm not taking the mickey I understand why they would do this Used to put their feet above the trenches In the hope that they'd get shot So that there was enough of an injury So they could get sent home But Obviously not so much of an injury that it would uh, cause them something inconvenient like death. Oh, my gosh. Um, which, is, I, which I presume is where shooting your own foot comes from. I don't know, but... 
Very good. Uh, well, or getting your own foot shot off. Thoughts in an email. Hello at whitehallsources.com. Uh, right, let's talk about the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer of the Labour Party, of course, who, by the way, just by way of a segue, uh, he did come out to sort of support, didn't he, the, 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 um, the action of uh, NatWest and getting rid of uh, Alison Rose. Although there was a kind of weird gulf this morning where nobody was quite sure what Labour's line on this situation actually was. But he said it was right she resigned. I certainly don't think anybody should be refused banking services because of their political views, whoever they are. So that's what Sir Keir Starmer had to say on that. And then... That's going to hurt, though. <laughs> that's going to hurt, right, to, to, to be a Labour politician and have to row out in defence of Nigel Farage. <laughs> yeah, we're all on Team Farage now, was the Labour memo. Um, elsewhere today, Sir Keir Starmer has <laughs> insisted that a woman is an adult female. Uh, this is being described as a hardening of his stance on gender. Uh, this from the Times, the Labour leader insisted that biological women needed single-sex spaces as he ruled out introducing self-identification for changing gender, saying he would retain a requirement for medical diagnosis. And he was taking a bit of a swipe at the SNP's attempt at doing this, remember, just before Christmas, which, uh, I mean, was definitely a contributing factor to Nicola Sturgeon's resignation, as we've discovered since there were probably many contributing factors to that. But anyway, uh, he kind of bla- he described the SNP's cavalier attempt to liberalise gender laws and that was part of what has persuaded Sir Keir Starmer to emerge on this side of this particular um, discussion. Uh, So he's retaining a requirement for medical diagnosis. In what way does this debate resolve itself, Kirsty? I'm trying to sort of fathom the path through it. You know, the question, what, what is a woman? Can you define a woman it seems that politicians are becoming more confident in answering that question, I suppose, just as, a, as an initial observation. As an initial observation, like a normal human being, I can't believe that we ever <laughs> well, yeah. got ourselves in such a pretzel over this in the first place. But <laughs> can I, first of all, I was slightly uh, not paying attention there because I was looking up whether the Moscow pantheon of brains was a real thing or not. Oh, yes. Uh, and, to my, and to my great delight, it kind of was. Uh, the Moscow Brain Research Institute, 1925 to 1936, created by the investigation of Lenin's brain by German neurobiologist Oskar Voigt and his Russian collaborators in Moscow. It's one of the most exciting and questionable chapters in the history of medicine. It's <laughs> terrifying. Uh, anyway, to- talking about, you know, uh, more exciting and questionable chapters in the history of the <laughs> Labour Party... Um, and SNP. Look, you know, people yeah, have got yeah. into a frightful exactly. old kind of t- tiz about these things. Um, and I suspect, um, so, so we got so bad that I think Starmer once defined women as saying that 99.9% of women don't have penises. Now, uh, if that is the kind of, if that's kind of the cul-de-sac that you've backed yourself into, you know, I'd, I'd like to say that, you know, 99.9% of the public would have gone, huh, about that. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a there's a there's a straightforward um, uh, rationale to this. This debate has entirely been uh, dominated by um, the increasingly strident views of a handful of mm. activists, mm. given disproportionate airtime by a media that finds this all jolly entertaining, um, and politicians that have skewed themselves because they're too frightened to be you know to say what the rest of us say, which is. Kind of the common sense points, right? 
Mm. Uh, so this is to add to the Sir Keir Starmer's comments. Uh, he's speaking on BBC Radio 5 Live. He said, firstly, a woman is an adult female, so let's clear that one up. The party would keep it a medical process to change gender. He said he wanted to modernise the Gender Recognition Act and get rid of some of the indignities in the process. Now, if I may, this probably feels like, as you say, Kirsty, that maybe he's meeting the public where they are. And I don't wish to speak on behalf of everyone, but it strikes me that most people are probably of the mind of, I want people to be able to live safely as they are, and after that, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm, I'm overly bothered about about the, the intricacies of, 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 of how they identify and how they go about doing, making that decision, I suppose. Yeah, and it's, and it's not a kind of, you know, pluck out of the air. All polls show mm. a couple of things, right? That, that, that people want trans people to be treated with dignity and respect, but also that they want women to have safe spaces yeah. and that they think overwhelmingly that, that, that trans women competing in sport... Uh, with biological women is unfair uh, and they have an unfair advantage. Uh, and pretty much any poll you see anywhere will tell you that those are the overwhelming sentiments of the great British public. And it is part and parcel of uh, Keir Starmer's centering of the Labour Party um, that we have come to this common sense but compassionate uh, view um, because the the previous position was just not tenable. Mm. Self-identification is not tenable. And you only need to look at what happened in Scotland and the Isla Bryson yeah. uh, case to see uh, all the kind of complexities and problems that come with that. Can I ask you this? Is it a vote winner in any way at all? Or actually is it disproportionately possibly a vote loser? And I'm thinking about the SNP situation here because obviously Sturgeon ended up walking. The SNP tore it sh itself to shreds for weeks and months after that particular vote um, on gender recognition. And now it's been held up and in the courts and all of this, and there was great controversy. I'm just trying to work out if, if do you see what I mean? If, if by doing this, you're going to get more people on side, or if you're actually just massively at risk of losing a lot of people's support. Uh, I, I think it's neither. I think by okay. doing this, you're, ne you're neutralising it as a, well, you're hopefully... Yeah neutralising it as a vote winner or a vote loser. You know, this things like this are kind of Britain's equivalent of abortion rights debate in mm. uh, in America. These are these are values issues. And the reason that this one has caught so hard uh, is because it's it's a it's a totem for whether pol politicians share the values of normal people or don't. You know, so if you're an SNP or you're Labour, you spend a disproportionate amount of your time talking about or thinking about trans rights in the middle of a cost of living crisis, then what you're signalling is that you are kind of out of kilter with where people are and mm. where, where people's priorities are. So you need to park that as an issue by you know, creating a common sense, common ground kind of position and then focus on the things that you should be focusing on and the public want you to focus on, which is cost of living crisis and what politicians can do to ease it. There you are. Thank you very much, Kirsty. Great to chat. Uh, very, very lovely indeed. And uh, we are here every single week on Whitehall Sources. We have a lovely time doing this. I mean, I'm only speaking for myself, but I feel like Kirsty enjoys it a little bit. And, uh, <laughs> and we do... <laughs> 
and we love the fact that you are here. I do now have discovered there's a pantheon of brains. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's made my day there. I mean, I'm, a... You know what I'm going to do, by the way? Go I'm going to spend the rest of the evening researching the pantheon of great brains and sending you fascinating facts about okay. it. I am a massive weird history nerd and I love stuff like this. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I look, I look forward to it. I'm just going to go and turn notifications on loud so that I make sure not to miss any <laughs> pantheon of brains chat. Uh, thanks very much, Kirsty. Um, great to spend time with you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your emails always as well. Please keep those coming. If you've got questions or issues you want to be discussed, uh, then get in touch. Or if you've just got a nice message to pop by with, then you're very welcome to do that as well. Uh, the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Thank you for listening. Please make sure you follow and subscribe and we'll talk to you again next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.